All right, if you would, let's turn over to Revelation chapter 4 tonight. Revelation chapter 4, as we continue our journey through the book of Revelation. And tonight, looking at Revelation 4, and we'll consider this evening together the vision of the throne. The vision of the throne. Uh, Revelation chapter 4 is a short chapter, comparatively speaking. Uh, It only contains 11 verses. Uh, But many have considered this really the pinnacle of the descriptions of who God is. And as we read through this, and we'll read straight through all 11 verses, uh, primarily tonight will be kind of an introduction to this chapter and then some general observations, and primarily dealing with verses 1 and 2 tonight. And uh, so this will be at least a couple weeks here in chapter number 4. So if you would, look with me in your Bible there at verse 1. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven And one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardin stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass, like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf. And the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. This is a remarkable portion of Scripture. All God's word of the inspiration of God is remarkable. But this is one of those passages that really makes us stop and consider and think primarily about the holiness of God. Not just a partial holiness, not just somewhat holy, but the perfect holiness of God and the picture of the we are that is painted for us in this particular chapter is nothing short of amazing. We understand that through the first three chapters and as we've worked our way and are working our way through, we could call the first three chapters in this study uh, really the quote-unquote first cycle of the book of Revelation. Throughout those chapters, we have gotten a heavenly view, if you will, of not only Christ, but also the church as we studied those seven letters and we looked at the various admonitions and commendations and rebukes that Christ gave to some of those churches. We've learned a lot about what God thinks about not only His Son, but what He thinks about the church Of course, you'll recall that in chapter 1, the Apostle John first describes a vision. He has a vision of one like the Son of Man standing, is how he described it, in the midst 
of the seven lampstands, which was a representation of the complete church. And you remember John's initial response when he saw this vision. It was a response of awe. It was a response of reverence. It was a response that is only the response of one who knows this Lord. He, the Bible says in verse 17 of chapter 1, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But almost instantaneously, you'll recall that John is comforted by the victorious Savior. Christ comforts him with these words, and he says, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And of course, he goes on and tells him, I also have the keys of hell and of death. It's John's response to that vision that really is the preface for the vision that he now receives in chapter 4. Now, you'll recall in chapters 2 and 3, John sets forth those letters to the churches. They are dictated to him. They are inspired scripture by Christ himself, Christ the King. And in those letters, we see that Christ's church receive both discipline as well as comfort. And how many lessons have we learned through those seven letters about things that should be disciplined for, but also things we should be comforted in? Uh, Those seven letters certainly contained both. But we look at those letters to the seven churches and we are called and really admonished to examine ourselves. We're called to examine, uh, have we left our first love? Are we uh, truly faithful? Or have we uh, grown apathetic? Have we grown indifferent? Are we just going through the motions? There, There are so many challenges through those seven letters about our own standing before God and where we are. And maybe, sadly, hopefully we have not become tolerant or complacent and tolerant towards false doctrine. It was a very serious accusation that the Lord made towards the churches about false doctrine. Uh, It concludes really in chapter 3 with those letters. And that concludes really the first of these cycles of the book of Revelation. Now in our study, really as we look and open and turn to chapter 4, we begin what we'll refer to as the second cycle of revelation. Now maybe you have not heard it approached that way and I'm not calling this dogmatic and this is the only way we can do it, but this is the way that as we study through it, this is what's helping me to kind of put this in the terminology of cycles. I think about a cycle as something that it runs a particular gamut. It, uh, you think about a circuit, we think about a circle and it, it has a starting point, it has an ending point. Once it reaches the ending point, we go to the next cycle or the next circuit. And that's how I'm kind of looking at this as we study through it. And what you're going to notice over now, probably throughout the remainder of our study, however many months and years this takes, is we're going to take a little bit different of an approach as far as how we study it. It's going to feel more like a Bible study. It's going to feel more like We're going to spend a lot of time looking at individual words and turning in our Bibles and looking at different references and uh, looking at scriptural support, examples of how do we see this play out in the totality of Scripture. So we are in what we're going to refer to as the second cycle. Now, I may not mention that every week. I may not say, remember, we're in the second cycle, but kind of use chapter 4 as the beginning of that circuit or that second cycle. Uh, As a reminder, again, there is going to be, uh, hopefully we will understand what I mean by this, uh, there is going to be a progressive and what we'll also call a parallel nature of this cycle. In other words, there is a moving forward, but then there's also, it's running parallel with other things. Uh, Remember, not everything you read is necessarily in chronological order, or is it uh, to be taken that way? So we'll try to make mention of those things as we get there. But what we're looking at primarily is chapters 4 through 7 still containing a description in some way, shape, or form. Although progressive and parallel, it is containing a description of past, present, and future events which I believe scripturally is covering the time between Jesus' first and second coming. 
Now, when we get to chapter 6, there is a short uh, mention of the final judgment. And that's at the end of chapter 6, and we're a little bit away from that. But that's kind of where we're going. Now, uh, how you take notes, if you want to take notes, some people, they are helped by notes. Other people are not helped. They're distracted. I have said this often. I am... I'm, a, I'm distracted by notes personally. If you put a pen in my hand or a pencil in my hand and a piece of paper, I start drawing and I start doodling and I, it loses, it, I lose track. But if you are taking notes and it's something that helps you, uh, this is a way we can kind of outline chapters four through seven. So we're giving a, a big broad uh, picture tonight before we even get into this. Uh, we could outline the chapters in this manner. Chapter 4 primarily deals with God and creation with a description of the universe with God's throne at the very center of it. So when we think about God and we think about creation, what I want us to consider and think is that God's throne is at the center of the universe. He's at the center of everything. So that everything else is around that throne. Now I know in our science classes, we're kind of told that the center of everything is the sun, right? That's kind of everything's is orbiting around the sun. But God's throne is the center. And with God's throne at the center, not just uh, symbolically, but in reality, God's throne is at the center of everything. Not just in an allegory, but at the center. So we approach chapter 4 with, and we'll look at this tonight in some general observations. We look at this and say, okay, God's throne is not just some ambiguous thing, right? It's, it's actually the center of the universe. It's the center of all existence, past, present, and future. The throne of God is the center. So chapter 4 deals with God and creation primarily and the description of the universe. Chapter 5 primarily deals with the Lamb and redemption. And there is what we'll refer to as a coronation ceremony of Jesus. We'll talk more about that as we uh, get closer to it. Chapter 6 deals with the opening of the six seals. And there's references there which have caused many people so much consternation and so much hand-wringing because they, they begin to say, now this is really in the scripture in the book of Revelation where we're getting into this part where I don't really understand, I'm confused about what this is, and we start getting nervous and saying, look, uh, this is where you're just going to start, you're losing me in the book of Revelation. Uh, remember, it, it, the Bible is meant to be understood. It's meant to be comprehended. Now, there are mysteries, no doubt, we don't fully comprehend. We do not fully comprehend, as we've said, many of the, some of the most precious doctrines. We don't fully understand uh, the doctrine of foreknowledge. We don't fully understand all the doctrine of election. But these are meant to be understood. Now, remember, we, we do believe the Bible literally, but we know that the Scripture does contain, especially Revelation, does contain allegories that are meant to be symbolic, not meant to be what an actual thing looks like. Okay, like we use the example with Jesus and the sword out of his mouth. It's, it's, the, it's the, the reality of who he is and part of who he is, not that Jesus is walking around with a sword out of his mouth. It's an allegory. And I remember I gave us the comparison to one of the great allegorical stories, uh, human, uh, human authored books as Pilgrim's Progress. It's filled with allegories from the opening to the end where uh, Christian is describing his journey and he's using word pictures and illustrations. Well, that's what happens in Revelation too. So we'll get to those seals, but that deals with the, also some that causes some confusion, the, the, the four horsemen that are mentioned there. And then as I mentioned, there's a description of the final judgment in chapter six. And then in Revelation chapter seven, I've just simply entitled this, the protection victory and peace of the redeemed with the lamb now chapter 7 is also is what's contained the 144,000 which is another source of uh, confusion has been another source of people wondering who are the 144,000 
and uh, you'll have to wait a little while till we get there, but we're going to talk about it. So there's those, that's the next cycle, if you will. Chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. So in the description of chapter 4, which is where we are now, the God in creation, a description of the universe with God's throne at the center. In verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4, here's some outlines and general observations about this chapter as a whole. Uh, we won't get into necessarily a lot of the exposition of a verse by verse, but we are going to touch on it. Verses 1 through 6, I have simply just put a header on this, that this is the throne of God, is the primary description. So 1 through 6 of chapter 4 is the throne of God being described. Now there is some overlap with the second heading, but this is how it, this is how it simplifies it for my uh, finite brain uh, to comprehend things. So 1 through 6 is the throne of God. 7 through 11 is the worship of God. Now again, the worship and the throne all go together. Because with wherever the throne of God is, there is going to be worship. Right? It's not optional. Anyone or anything that is attending, surrounding the throne of God, must worship. It's not optional. It's not something that, hey, I see the throne of God and I'm going to think, do I want to worship this God? Do I want to bow down to this God? No, it is a must because God's throne is the center of everything. Really, a lot of the book of Revelation hinges on the throne of God because the throne of God has a specific meaning. And we'll talk about that as we go. So as we consider this, Let's just look at verses 1 and 2. And we're going to kind of jump off of here and use some examples in Scripture that kind of illustrate this. So again, we see John, and it says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. Again, this begins this second cycle in Revelation. It, it can be described as shifting the focus from the things on earth primarily to now the things of heaven. All right, that's, that's kind of how you can think about this. So where is this door opened? It says that the door was opened in heaven and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me. Now that, <clears throat> that's a strange way to put it. Again, John is not saying a trumpet was talking to me. But he describes it as a trumpet, which is often a, a, it is, is a, a trumpet is often used to get attention. It is used to draw. It is used to, uh, to, to, to alert someone what's happening. And in this case, it's a call to attention because he's getting ready to have this vision of the very throne of God, which said, come up hither. And I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit. Now this is very similar to what John said back in John 1 verse 10 when he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Remember what he said. And heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. So the first time John had a vision in the first cycle of Revelation, he said, I was in the Spirit and I heard a voice like a trumpet. So there is some significance to the fact that when God speaks, John describes it as a trumpet, a call to attention. So we're being called to be attentive to what he sees. He says immediately, in this, I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. I was... <clears throat> looking at uh, the Geneva Bible notes on this today. Again, that's uh, the Geneva. I love the Geneva Bible. I love the Geneva notes. They're fantastic. Matter of fact, we're going to reference some of those tonight. It act they actually used a phrase when it says, and immediately I was in the spirit. Uh, they used the word I was ravished. I was taken in by. I was overwhelmed by the vision and the sight that I saw. It, 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 it took me in. And it really is an amazing way to describe what John was seeing. Now, when we think about the throne of God, and I had to think about this myself, 
how few people in history, and of course, how few people in Bible history were granted the opportunity of a vision of the heavenly throne room. Now, you think throughout Scripture, and you might be able to name a couple. You may be able to say, well, I know, I remember this person was granted some sort of a vision of the heavenly throne room. But do you know that there are very few people in Scripture who actually were able to catch a vision of the throne of God? Now, in addition to what John has seen, the ones that I was able to think of, and maybe you know more, and that's certainly okay, but the ones that I was able to identify were Moses... Isaiah, Stephen, and Paul. Now, each one of them is a little bit different of a description. So, as I said, we're going to do a lot of turning back and forth. And again, this is going to be more like a Bible study. So, not so much as, as preaching a sermon, although it's preaching, it's, it's a bit different. But Exodus 24, and look at uh, verse number 9. Now again, when we do these supporting verses, we're not getting the full context of everything. But I want you to notice what is being said here. Exodus 24, <coughs> verse 9. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet as it were a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were the body of heaven in his clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand, also they saw God and did eat and drink. Now, it talks about they saw the God of Israel. They, they were not seeing, and this is in many commentary notes, and it's even in the notes in my Bible, they were not seeing the divine essence of God per se, because that is invisible. But what they were seeing was what's referred to as a covenantal presence. It was, if you will, a foretaste or a preview of that which is and which is to be. Okay, and I don't want to get too far uh, in the weeds on that. Again, but it's, it's, a, it's not seeing necessarily the divine essence of God, but rather it's a foretaste of the promises of God. And of course, we know the promises of God are all shrouded in covenantal promises. One we'll be very familiar with is Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. We've been looking at this each, the last two Sundays as part of the Lord's parable that he's teaching on the parable of the sower and one of the visions that he refers to is Isaiah chapter 6. Now again I know we've read this a couple of times over the last few weeks but I do not think it's ever wrong to read it again. I do not think you could read Isaiah 6 enough. I think it is uh, one of again one of those passages that really uh, shows us the beauty here. Isaiah 6 uh, look with me at verse number one, and we'll just read down through a few of these verses. In the, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord uh, sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Uh, let me just stop and say that that phrase, I saw also the Lord, that is a reference to the sovereignty of God and his kingship. Okay, notice Isaiah saw God sitting on a throne, which is the same thing that John says. That door opened in heaven and he saw God seated, okay? High and lifted up and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain, he covered his face and with twain, he covered his feet and with twain, he did fly. And notice Isaiah says something very similar to what we read in Revelation 4. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now remember, the throne of God is the center of the universe. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Now again, what was Isaiah's response to this? It was not pride. It was not, hey, look at me. God has not said a word yet. 
And Isaiah's response to the vision is, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. And of course, we've talked about the, the remainder of this over the last couple of weeks. Remember, Isaiah's mission after he saw uh, this vision of the throne was not go and open eyes and unstop ears, but rather God said, I'm sending you to close eyes and to clog ears. But Isaiah was afforded the privilege of seeing this vision of the throne. The next one is in the book of Acts, chapter 7, and it is a reference to Stephen. Of course, we all, I presume, maybe I shouldn't presume, but we all are at least familiar with the story of Stephen. And of course, Stephen has been preaching, and as he's preaching he has not watered down the gospel he has made statements such as in verse 51 of Acts 7 you stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears you do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did so do ye uh, he did not pull any punches but verse 54 says when they heard these things they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth but he that Stephen being full of the Holy Ghost looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God. Now, just for a minute, I just, and, and artists and Sunday school teachers have tried to paint a picture of what Stephen was actually seeing. Now, I'm telling you right now, you cannot put on paper or with a paintbrush what it means to see the glory of God. But what Stephen was getting was a glimpse into the throne room. He was getting a glimpse of the vision of the throne, which again has not been afforded to many. But look again, he says he sees the glory of God and he sees Jesus standing on the right hand of God, which is exactly where we expect Jesus to be because the Bible says that's where he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Even Stephen sees him in the place where the Bible declares him to be. Remember, the greatest, the greatest commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. And said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Notice the response of the people. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. They cast him out of the city, verse 58. They stoned him. The witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. What an amazing transformation. Conversion happens in Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had laid, said this, he fell asleep. Moses, Isaiah, Stephen. Describe seeing at least a glimpse into this throne room. And then the final one is 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 4. Again, this is one of those passages that has been debated. And I'm sadly sad, sad to say I think the debate is over the wrong thing. Because I think the, Bible's, the Bible clearly shows us all we really need to know about this. And Paul describes it rather well. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 1. It is not expedient for me doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now it's an interesting phraseology the King James uses. Your translation may use something different. But I will come to visions. He, he's actually saying I will now speak on visions and revelations of the Lord. He's speaking about something that he saw. I knew a man, he says, in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body, now notice his description, I cannot tell, or whether out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. Now he settles the matter right there. He says, I knew this man, I knew this man in Christ, can't tell if it was in the body or out of the body, God knows. 
That's important because it gives us context. Such as a one caught up to the third heaven. Now, a third heaven is a reference to where God is. All right? You really have what's three heavens. You've got, the, you've got the sky, you've got space, and then you've got the third heaven. That's the realm of God. Okay? Now, again, don't get wrapped up in this idea. Okay, where exactly is heaven? And if I was to go in, into a, a, a NASA or a, a, a SpaceX rocket, right? I, I want to I take that to the third heaven. I want to take that to where God is. Don't get so caught up on the location of it. Okay? But what he is saying is he sees this vision, how, he, how that he was caught, or I come to the third heaven, I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth. Now, do you notice he repeats it twice? He says the same thing in verse 2 that he says in verse 3. Uh, He's saying the exact same thing. I can't tell whether I was in the body or out of the body, but this is what I saw. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words. Now, unspeakable means they are unable to be repeated. That's what that, that's what that phrase means. It doesn't mean that the words were not heard or recognized, but they were words that were not allowed to be repeated, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. So Paul, of course, is, is speaking of himself. This, this is one of those plays on words. When he says, I, I knew a man, he was talking about himself. I know a man that was in Christ. But Paul did not, could not, would not boast in that. He would not boast in the privilege that he was given to see that vision of the throne of God. And I think he was also given the instructions, you will not repeat this. So these privileges that have been granted to just these men or these men that we've looked at tonight, then we know that this is certainly a very special thing that has been given to these men. But of course, Paul doesn't really know whether it was a vision or whether he was actually transported there. All he knows is he says, I'm going to speak of what I have seen, but the some things I cannot say. I can't repeat them. So that's just a few people in history who have seen this vision. Now, let's go back to Revelation 4 and look at verse 1 again. And this is where we have to kind of grasp this concept. That take note of the fact that the emphasis is not just on John's vision of heaven but rather it's a vision of all creation from the perspective of God's throne. In other words, we're tempted to just look at this and say, okay, John's got a vision and John's going to show us and tell us what he saw. It's not just about the vision. It's about the heavenly perspective. It's about God's perspective from the throne of God, the center of everything. Is everybody okay? <laughs> that's, that's the perspective that's here. So if we're not careful, we're going to get caught up in the description of everything that's going on. And we're going to get, we're going to, get to the place where we're going to say, boy, I, I'm so excited about hearing all the things that are going on in heaven and what's, what's there and what to see. And it's important. But what John's point is and what God's point is in Revelation 4 is to show us from heaven's perspective what the throne of God is all about at the center of the universe, the center of everything. It's a vision of all creation. Now we know that because heaven's perspective or God's words are as a voice of a trumpet, the evidence is given by the words of a voice which says, come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Now, when God says these things must be, you can mark this down. Those things will be. You're not going to hinder it. You're not going to stop it. 
because he is ruling from the center of the universe, from the very throne of God. And he says, John, come up here and I'm going to tell you and I'm going to show you what things will be. So wherever we read in Revelation, wherever we read in the Bible, these are not things that may happen. These are things that may happen if the stars align right. These are the things that are being dictated and directed and ordained and sovereignly planned from the throne of God. Which means you're not going to hinder it and you're not going to stop it. No matter how wicked, how depraved, how evil man gets, they are not going to stop the throne of God from being the center of everything and that God's plan will be fulfilled. But it also means that in God's sovereignty, there are things he says that even God's people, and this is where we start to lose some people because they think that there are no trials and there is no tribulation for believers in Christ after a certain point in the book of Revelation. In other words, they say God would never allow his people to go through that. I'm going to push back and argue with you and say that's not true. Because there are very specific trials and tribulations that the church must go through. He, he clearly states it in the verses and the chapters that are coming. There are things that the church must go through as part of the sovereign plan of God. Now, I know what sounds the best. All of us tonight as believers want to say, I want to be on the team on the side that doesn't have to deal with any trial, any tribulation. I want to escape it all. And we use, we use excuses like, well, God would never allow his precious church to go through anything. There are believers in Christ who are going through great atrocities today. But suddenly we get to the end times and we think God's going to change his plan, change his narrative. And suddenly the church doesn't have to go through any trials and any struggles. Now, again, the book of Revelation is a book of comfort. Because remember, even if trials and tribulations come, there's the promise of glory with Christ. Again, looking at perspective. The perspective of heaven, the throne of God upon man. Now these chapters, chapters 4 and 5, what we have to guard ourselves against is not just using this to give us a picture of heaven and then to say, here's what heaven looks like. Remember, Revelation is filled with symbolism. Now, people want to argue every jot and tittle about things that happen in Revelation. They're going to say, well, I think it's this. I think it's that. Some of those things are valid to argue, and some of those things are simply meant to be symbols and allegories to help describe who God is. So these chapters are not meant for us to leave saying, hey, I got a vision of heaven today. I have a vision of God. No, they're not meant to give us the complete picture of heaven, but again, to give us a picture of the entire universe from God's perspective. The purpose of the vision is to show us, really, in what can be described as beautiful symbolism, everything that's governed from the throne of God. Let me give you a little insight. How many things are governed from the throne of God? Everything. Everything is governed from the throne of God. Now, you will not hear anything more comforting than that. Because you are watching everywhere around you. Depraved leaders. Corrupt governments. God is neither depraved or corrupt. And praise God, he's the one governing and that no wicked government can raise its hand against him and remove him from the throne. No matter how dark the day gets, folks. No matter how long the night gets. God's throne will always be the center of everything where everything is governed from. Again, remember I told you, we can, we can get on an allegorical kick and we can get so descriptive in saying, well, let's talk about the description. The, the first beast and the second beast and the four beasts and the six wings. When we read Isaiah 6 and it talked about those, those uh, beasts that were attending the throne. 
What I want you to more pay attention to is what those attending the throne are doing, not what they look like. People are absolutely obsessed with what heaven's going to look like. They're obsessed with what's my residence going to look like. None of those things truly matter. It's what the, the attendants around the throne are doing. They're doing what they must do. They're worshiping God. And there's no, there's no complacency. There's no laziness. There's no idleness. There is no, hey, we'll just kind of do whatever we want to do. We'll approach the throne of God how we want. We'll bow down when we want. We'll stand up when we want. No, you find them laying flat on, the, on their face before God. Because that's what you must do if you're attending the throne of God. You see, that's what's missing from a lot of our modern churches. We have, we have lost it. We have lost the reality of who God really is. So that we, all these things, the earth is governed by the Lord on the throne. Therefore, we cannot lose sight of what is a simple but glorious truth. And we say it so many times around here, I fear that we take it for granted. God is indeed sovereign. Not every church believes that. This church does. We believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe in the total sovereignty of God, even the salvation of man. To say you believe in the sovereignty of God but stop short of redemption and salvation is to pretty much disregard God's sovereignty. So you can say, I believe in the sovereignty of God all the way up to a certain point. No, God told John, I want to show you everything that must be. You see, that's human pride that says, well, I'll let God. Have you heard anybody say this? I'm going to let God be sovereign. And, and sometimes I think we do this and we might mean well, but let's let, so, let God be sovereign in this. You haven't allowed God to be anything. You haven't let God be sovereign or sadly, and I don't mean disrespect because I know people have gone through terrible trials. We make a grand mistake when we say somebody goes through something hard and difficult and we say, you know what? I want you to take heart in this because God had nothing to do with this. That is not sound biblical counsel, folks. It's just not. Now, us pastors get called on a lot of difficult situations. And we get asked to provide comfort to people. And I'm telling you, it's the hardest part a pastor ever has to do is bring comfort to somebody who's going through something very, very difficult. Because they know at the heart, at the very center of everything that's happening is the throne of God. And to say that God had nothing to do with it would say that he's not governing one aspect. But he's governing it all. Even though you and you and you and you and you can't understand it. He's still sovereign. So, the church must understand at this point. He talks about the things which must be hereafter. These things include all things that he governs. That includes trials. That includes tribulations. That includes sufferings. That's the point. That's why the description of the throne, what it is, precedes the prediction of the trials. In other words, we get a vision as we study this chapter. We get a vision of the throne before we get an explanation of the trials that the church must go through. God does it in order for a reason. He doesn't say the church is going to go through trials and tribulations and struggles. Oh, by the way, here's the throne of God from my perspective. So what is the challenge? What is the intent? Is that we would, through the power of the Spirit, get a glimpse of the throne of God as the center of everything. So what is, let me, let me just quickly move through part of this. I do want us, I want us to get to at least a good point where we can stop here. Just uh, bear with me just a moment here. So there are things that the church, again, and we're not getting into details tonight, but I want you to understand there are things that the church must go through. The Bible says, even in Revelation, the church must go through here on earth. 
So to say that the church will not go through any tribulation is to not make a biblically accurate statement. Now again, we're going to have to define tribulation because some of you, when I say tribulation, you only think one thing. You think a seven-year tribulation and that's all you think about. Now again, we can't stop at a point just because we're familiar with it. There's tribulation throughout the Bible. There's tribulation when Jerusalem fell. There's tribulation throughout the scriptures where the people of God are going through horrendous trials. When wicked, vicious rulers like Nero are using Christians like human torches. And we say, oh, but the church is not going to have to go through any trouble because we're all going to be rescued before any trouble comes. Again, why would we just simply say, well, we'll be spared? The church is going to go through struggles. We'll deal more with them as we get to them. But chapters 4 and 5 are really teaching us one main lesson. And I, this, is, this is what I want us to grasp just for tonight. And as often is the case with me, we never get as far as I want to. But that's all right. The main lesson we're going to see between chapters 4 and 5, and this we're going to have to grasp this in these two chapters with God's help, of course. You will never see God's glory and the unity of even the end times unless we actually see what's going on in chapters 4 and 5. In other words, if you just want to run down the tracks and run down to the really high water, high mountain tops and say, I want to know what's going to happen this day and this day and this day, We've got to grasp chapters 4 and 5 before we're ever going to get there. That includes me. Because it is where the unity and the glory of God's sovereignty intersect. And it's what's going to help us understand that is God being unjust? Is God being unkind? Is God being unfair if he allows the church to go through tribulation and struggles? Well, some people believe that. Some people think if God lets the church go through that, then he's being unjust. But they don't have any problem saying, now we're okay with Israel going through a struggle and through a trial, but we're not okay with the church going through it. Again, guard against trying to fill in all the blanks right at this moment. But if we don't catch the gra or grasp this unity between the glorious unity and sovereignty of God, we're going to be lost in the allegories. We're going to be lost in the symbolism. Again, the point of Revelation is not to get lost in the allegory and is not to get lost in the symbolism. Just like the point of Pilgrim's Progress is not to get drawn in by the allegories, but rather what's actually being described. So the one main lesson I think that could be expressed in, in scripturally, uh, chapters 4 and 5, is what the psalmist says in Psalm 99.1. The Lord reigneth, let the people tremble. He sitteth between the cherubims. Let the earth be moved. There's a few things in there. The Lord reigns. If the Lord reigns, what should the people do? The psalmist said they should tremble. Now, is that just certain people or should all people tremble? Even believers in Christ should tremble at the reality that the Lord reigns. The fear of God is still the fear of God. And we as believers should have a fear of God. A fear of approaching him in a wrong manner. A fear of approaching him in an unworthy way. But again, what did the psalmist say there? The psalmist very clearly says, let the people tremble. He sitteth between the cherubims. That's the description of the visions we've seen tonight, is that he's between these cherubims, the throne of God, the center of everything. This is a truth of assurance. Folks, what this does for us is that even when fiery trials come, it should bring comfort to you that the Lord reigneth. If your comfort is who reigns in the highest level of any country's government, you're trusting in the wrong place and you're trusting in the wrong people. The church doesn't rely on Government, the church relies on the Lord reigning. Now we know the Lord ordains. He sets up governments and he takes them down. 
Would God be right in overthrowing our country's government? Absolutely. Would he, be, would he be right in overthrowing any country's government? Absolutely he would. Or would we as Americans be just prideful enough to say, well, no, we were founded, this is a Christian nation. God would never. God also doesn't just sit and turn his back and ignore, as we've talked about, the butchering of millions of babies over these years. He doesn't just simply say, oh, there's nothing to that. Man's depravity continues as it did start in the garden and continues to this day. So we need to keep those things in mind. And then finally, we have the comfort of believers that when fiery trials come, we know that the Lord reigneth at the very throne of God. That's why this vision of the universe governed by the throne precedes the trials. Now, folks, the trial, when you're going through it, doesn't seem so beautiful. But when you know that God is the one who's sovereignly governing and ruling, that's where the comfort comes from. Spurgeon himself would say that the sovereignty of God is the pillow in which I rest my head upon. If you don't have the sovereignty of God, you have no comfort and you have no hope and you are just, you are, you are subject to random chance. And there's nothing random in this world. God is governing and we can take comfort from that. Again, next week, we'll continue a little bit further with some more observations here. We'll talk about verses two, specifically about John and this being in the spirit. And then we'll deal primarily next week with the worship of God, what the attendants are doing, why they're doing what they're doing. And we'll get into a little bit about who the attendants are because the attendants also cause a little bit of controversy with people about who is, this is. Well, a lot of that's based upon where you think in the timeline we are. It's really what's going to be the answer to that. All right. Well, let's finish by singing the hymn tonight, an appropriate hymn for our subject.